Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. We're going to be talking today about chapter four in your book, Virtue Signaling, uh, at least initially. We'll see where the conversation meanders to. And you open this chapter with a quote from Aristotle that I had never heard. And he says that human good turns out to be the activity of the soul exhibiting excellence. I would love to hear what that quote means to you. If you parse that apart from, uh, I guess, through a lens of evolutionary biology and how you apply that to this chapter. Soul carries a lot of weight, but to me, it just means mind or consciousness or how well your brain works or mm. um, all the stuff that people would pay attention to when they're getting to know you, basically. So, you know, if you fall in love with someone, you kind of get to know their soul in the sense of, you know, their values, their preferences, their traits, mm. their history, what drives them, you know, the past, the future, etc. So soul, don't get scared by that word. It, to a psychologist, it just means your psyche, your mind. Mm. Exhibiting excellence also carries a lot of freight. But to a Darwinian, it really just means how well adapted to your environment are you? Mm. you know, how fit are you? And your environment for humans, for any kind of social primate, is largely the other beings around you, the other people around you. Mm. And, you know, in particular, the most important people, your friends, family, and, and mates. So I think Aristotle's really trying to get at um, virtue is kind of an index of how well your mind works from the point of view of the people around you. Mm. And that partly implies kind of to what extent can you be useful and helpful and reliable to them. So I think there's kind of a social notion of virtue that's packed into that also. And that's really what that, that chapter is about. The, you know, the chapter was actually based on a journal paper that I wrote and published back in 2007. So I've kind of updated it and wrote a new preface for it. Um, but it's kind of my, um, my manifesto about the evolutionary origins of virtue ethics and human morality. Mm. And I, I take a kind of unusual perspective on that stuff.
Yeah, it's um, definitely an original perspective on human moral virtue and its evolution or development. Um, so I wonder, so you're saying that the soul in your mind is basically a term for consciousness, the mind, logos. Uh, where do you see, isn't it, there's some element of values in there as well. Do you, do you see values as being purely emanating from the mind? I think like everything that happens um, in your behavior and in your mind, it's kind of, you know, it, it's grounded in your, your mind, just like your, your mind is grounded in your brain. So, mm -hmm. you know, philosophers will say your mind supervenes on your brain. Like it, it depends on it without your brain, no mind, without your mind, you don't really have any uh, values. Mm -hmm. um, but values are certainly heavily cultural, heavily social. And one of the major points in, in that chapter was to point out that also, in the kinds of high-stakes, high-risk, long-term relationships that we have with mates, girlfriends, boyfriends, spouses, um, a lot of the values that matter um, are kind of the ones that are apparent to your mate. Mm -hmm. So your values are never just yours. If you're in a marriage, in some very deep sense, your spouse kind of owns and is subject to your values. They're partly responsible for training your values and helping you to, to perfect them and actualize them and manifest them. Mm -hmm. And so in contrast to kind of traditional virtue ethics where you tend to think of like, there's some lone virtuous Nietzschean figure on a mountaintop, you know, actualizing himself for his own good I wanted to ground this in actual human relationships, including the most intimate ones, like with husbands and wives. Mm. And I think anybody who's been married or even just in a long-term relationship knows, um, like nobody knows your virtues and your vices better than your partner. They are kind of like the ultimate arbiter of whether you're a good person. When you have a moral failing, they're often the first one to notice when you have a, you know, a moral triumph, they're often the first one, hopefully, to notice and praise mm -hmm. you and reinforce that. So, um, you know, in, in contrast to kind of the stereotype that evolutionary psychology is all about, like, individualism and your individual success, um, this is pointing out, like, we're a species that form really crucial long-term pair bonds. And human virtues kind of arise and flourish, I think, largely in, you know, that context, but also in the context of important deep friendships, mm. you know, with people of either sex and in uh, deep relationships with teammates and coworkers and mentors mm -hmm. and students and all of that. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of push the virtue ethics away from this kind of runaway individualism mm. in, into a kind of more realistic social direction. Mm, interesting. Yeah, there's, um, you know, I guess part of what cognitive scientists talk about today is they have started to view cognition as more of a distributed activity versus just purely inside the confines of your own skull. Uh, you know, Peterson talks about how we outsource our sanity to those around us. Um, so I, I wonder if, because one thing here is, so the word good 
can be ambivalent, but um, what I've been reading some Rothbard lately doing a series on that, and he's making the argument that goodness is whatever you are naturally equipped to do. And I think kind of to your point here that humans are equipped to cooperate. Um, and this, this is a very, very deep um, way to look at it because you start to look at us more as like one organism versus just as individual organisms in a way. Um, and then the second word in that sense, I think is very interesting is excellence actually, because cooperation certainly allows us to achieve what we would um, I think classify as more excellent outcomes, but we also need competition, right? Which competition is actually what is pushing us to excel. I'm thinking about this through kind of a market lens, but it applies to, you know, sexual competition and all these other things, I'm sure. How do you then look at the relationship between the two? Because clearly it's necessary that we're cooperating. I guess the cooperation is sort of pushing one direction, maybe pushing and the competition's pulling or vice versa. They seem to be complementary. Um, how does that fit into your framework here that you're exploring in the chapter? Yeah, I think that's a really deep point that what, what we humans are often doing is we're competing to be better cooperators, mm. you know, Interesting. and we're also um, cooperating to be better competitors, often at a kind of team or group or tribal level. Yes. Interesting. And so in the economy, you know, if you're kind of Rothbardian or you're really into free markets, you kind of respect the, the, um, the discipline and the drive to excellence that market competition imposes on every business. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't deliver value to your customers and um, growth to your investors, somebody else is trying really, really hard to do that better than you are. Mm -hmm. And they will try to borrow all of your best insights and they will be more excellent or more virtuous, or at least more efficient than you are. So the market economy is a wonderful engine for driving excellence, progress, virtue, you know, of particular types. Um, and then you have firms, and the firms are competing with other firms, but within the firm, hopefully, everyone's more or less kind of cooperating. I think the same thing happens in mating markets, you know, Everybody from puberty onwards, you know, learns like in high school, okay, if I'm heterosexual, for example, I'm competing against all my same-sex rivals. Um, some of them will be friends and allies, but to first approximation, we're all competing. And I'm trying to attract, you know, the best opposite sex mate that I can. They're judging us on every trait they can possibly notice, mm -hmm. including moral virtues. And so I'm going to compete to try to display those traits, including moral virtues, as best I can. And I'm, you know, acutely aware that all my rivals are doing the same, you know? And it's not just in humans a matter of who's, you know, the biggest, strongest guy or who's the smartest or who's the most extroverted. It's also about your uh, moral reputation. You know, right. are you reliable? Are you altruistic, et cetera? And we judge those traits also. Um, without the competition, you know, if you're, I often use this example with my students, like 
if you're shipwrecked on a deserted island with one person of the opposite sex and you're both heterosexual, you don't have that many outside options. You don't have much bargaining power. Um, you don't even have that much, you know, incentive to do great mating effort. Either they're going to kind of take you as you are or they won't take you at all and you'll like agree to live on opposite sides of the island and never, never uh, co-mingle. Um, but as soon as you introduce competition, right, if it's one woman and three guys on the deserted island, you know, then they're going to be competing with each other or vice versa, three right. women and one guy. Um, and it's under those conditions of kind of competition to be virtuous that you get the, the striving for, for um, excellence. So this is, this is a very different view than the kind of traditional um, sort of hermit view, right? That says, oh, the more asexual you are, the more virtuous. Uh, this is a view that says the more um, embedded in a good mating market you are, where hopefully the social norms reward virtue, the more, more embedded in the mating market you are, mm. the more virtuous you can become. Or for married people, you know, the higher your mate's ethical standards, uh, the more you know you'll work to to meet those ethical standards. And and it and it's weird. People don't often talk about this kind of ethical dimension of marriage outside of religious communities, where I think it is quite salient. Interesting. So um, that's an interesting point that you go from two individuals on the deserted island to say three of one sex, one of another. It introduces competition, which would then effectively incentivize the larger group to display more moral behavior or virtue signal, I guess we could say, among other things. I'm sure it's also about their hunting skills and climbing trees and fetching water and all these um, more physical attributes. There would also be these moral dimensions they'd be competing to display. Um, I, have a, I want to ask about, before we move on from that original quote, this concept of soul this is something I'm very deeply curious about. I don't exactly know what it is. It's mysterious. Uh, I appreciate that consciousness is at least part, perhaps all of it. But I, the example I think about is that it seems like it's somehow related to our body as well, like our physiology. Because I could think of a purely moral, reasonable man, a stand-up guy, but if all of a sudden he's in a situation of starvation, he may do something that he typically considers to be unreasonable. So there's this interface between kind of the bodily needs and the higher self. I typically refer to this as kind of like the animal and the angel inside of us. And it seems like the soul is somewhere in between, maybe trying to mediate between the two. How is that? does that fit into your thinking at all that way? Like what is the, I guess, how do we reconcile soul to the biological self? I think there's some really, there's like some really interesting rethinking about this going on with the, uh, the simulation hypothesis. And that's a big rabbit hole and I'm not sure we want to go down it, but um, what I've, I teach a course on alternative relationships, and we spend about a week in that course talking about uh, 
um, Christian relationships, and we cover some of the mainstream sort of Christian theology around sex and marriage and relationships. Um, and in Catholic theology, for example, there's this um, concept from Pope John Paul II of the theology of the body. And it's basically an argument that says the human soul is embodied in very important ways and that the kind of stereotypical view of, let's say, Christian resurrection, where your, your sort of abstract soul is resurrected into some vague, fluffy, cloudy heaven. Um, Pope John Paul II said, no, the doctrine of bodily resurrection is important. Your actual physical body is an important sort of part of your soul and vice versa. So you can't really have resurrection of the soul without resurrection of the embodiment that kind of goes with it. Um, that actually fits pretty well with, you know, the Darwinian views of what is a nervous system. You know, it's not just the central nervous system. It's not just your cerebral cortex that thinks it's doing all the thinking. It's also your limbic system. It's also your peripheral nervous system. It's also your senses. It's all the motor neurons that control your behavior. So um, to me, you know, to the extent that I believe in a soul at all, it's a very distributed thing. It's a very physically embodied thing. And it's something that's as much about your senses and your behavioral capabilities as it is about your kind of abstract thinking. Mm, interesting. And so I think this relates to um, virtue and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Like you talk to um, philosophers about what is morality and it's usually about making the sort of correct, they think correct decisions in sort of abstract moral dilemmas. Like if you were in this situation, how would you behave? Mm. But to a spouse, an important aspect of your morality is taking care of your body, mm -hmm. you know, your sleep hygiene, working out, lifting heavy, eating mm -hmm. right. And like when I had, um, uh, when Diane and I were writing our um, wedding vows, we explicitly put in some lines about a sort of duty to take care of our physical health mm. as sort of a marital virtue. Mm. And so to me, the soul exhibiting excellence includes, you know, everything around the soul that embodies the soul also. That's great. Yeah. It's the body kind of serving as a temple to the soul um, or even the mind as well. I, I forget which, maybe it was Plato and Aristotle, um, the ancient philosophers that were talking about actually a sound, strong body was a necessary precursor to a sound, strong mind, um, which is something we've kind of gotten away from today. But but the, the science proves it out too. I've seen these studies of lifting heavy weights is the best way to prevent cognitive degeneration into older age. So um, really interesting way to look at it. Uh, so I want to drill into this a little bit. You know, you're describing, so cognition internally is not just in the skull, it's distributed, right? It's through the spinal cord, the nervous system, there's neurons, I believe in the heart, the gut. So we have a distributed cognition system inside of us. There's this other distributed cognition system outside of us, right? We're interacting with market participants and the mating market and all these other things. 
Um, and back to that point where when competition is introduced, where you're creating more incentives to virtue signal, I guess. Um, oh, may, maybe I should ask this first. So morality itself. How would you define morality before I ask this question? Because I think this is a complicated area. Like, do you have a go-to definition for the term moral or morality? I tend to approach this kind of descriptively rather than like normatively. So I think what people are talking about when they talk about morality, you know, what do they really mean by that? I think they mean this kind of a set of, um, norms and expectations and values and, and predictions that they would like to be able to make about your behavior, particularly mm. your behavior towards other sentient beings that could experience, um, you know, joy or misery, happiness, sadness, well-being, or, or you know, failure. Mm. And so morality is very much about evaluating each other in terms of how we interact. Um, if we were a non-social species, you know, if we were like some extreme version of like orangutans pretty much living on our own in the forest, yeah. hardly interacting at all with anybody else, we would have concerns about optimality. Like, do I forage efficiently? Do I avoid predators? Do I do like good, you know, risk judgments about how to, how to survive? But they wouldn't really have morality in any meaningful way. Right. Um, once they do parenting, once they're taking care of little orangutans, there's kind of a morality of parenting in the sense of like, how do I trade off my interests and my offspring's interests? And then once you complexify it, once you get pair bonds or once you get interactions within a tribe, you know, the more complex your social life, the more complex your morality right, right. to get to kind of cope with it. Um, so I think of it very much from this kind of evolutionary social psychology mm -hmm. perspective. And of course, there's a lot of um, cultural elements to it and you know, morality shifts and adapts and, and changes as civilization advances and changes and technology changes and so forth. And we're always kind of making it up as we go along to some degree, but I think there's a remarkable stability to a lot of the moral issues that we face because there's a remarkable stability to the kinds of um, potential trade-offs and conflicts and forms of cooperation that we can have with other people and with yeah. other animals, actually. Yes, yeah, so that makes sense. So there, this framework of expectations of actions of others, right? So it lets us kind of decomplexify the world, right? If we can trust that someone's going to behave along a certain gradient that helps us focus on other things versus worrying about if they're going to stab you in the back or something like that. Um, and so then to your point, the morality is emerging from our so sociality, I guess. And then the more complex those social interactions become, the more complex morality becomes. So what I wanted to get to, and I mentioned this to you offline, that I have this kind of hypothesis that virtue, there's a relationship between the free market and the emergence of virtue, that the more sophisticated our market relations become, uh, 
it actually calls out the need for higher virtue in a way. So, um, for instance, you know, honesty, I guess if you had very limited interactions with others and you're just a caveman trying to eat your meal, honesty may not be a strong suit for you. You know, it's just kind of like take whatever action is necessary to eat or reproduce today. Whereas if you're a capitalist in the 21st century and you've got long production processes and you've got to deal with people over long time horizons, honesty is very clearly a dominant strategy because if you're dishonest, you'd betray your reputation. It would have all these second order, third order consequences. So how do you think about the relationship between markets and I guess the sophistication of markets, or we could say maybe even the wealth they're generating? Because another way I think about this, and please tell me wherever I'm wrong, is that morality is in some ways luxuriant. Like, Again, the caveman doesn't really have time to worry about morality or sit around and read Plato. He's just trying to, you know, get it done for the day. <laughs> Whereas we in modernity, thanks to the market, we have all this free time, all this wealth to sit back and reflect on on moral virtues and behaviors. How are these two things related? The 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 development of the free market and virtue and or morality. I think this is a big underappreciated aspect of the development of market economies is the kind of moral impact that they have, particularly on how we treat strangers and also how we think of ourselves in terms of our kind of professional role, our public-facing role that's kind of separate from our private family role. Mm. I think there is a bit of a stereotype that morality is not relevant to kind of hunter-gatherer tribal people. Actually, they do a lot of moral judgment all the time, right? Mm. It's very physically grounded. It's like a good hunter is a good hunter. A good hunter is one who's skillful enough to go out and find meat and then come back and deliver it to, you know, his mate and his kids and the rest of the tribe. And if he fails, it's not just a failure of skill. It's also treated as kind of a moral failing. Mm. You know, like bad hunters are, are kind of like evil and lazy. Mm. Likewise, if you're in a tribe and you're going out and doing like intertribal warfare and you really need to rely on the guys next to you not to flake out and not to complain, oh, I've got a bellyache. I can't go on the raid to protect our tribe. Oh man, the moral judgment is effing intense. And people who betray you know, their brothers in arms uh, will never be allowed to forget it, like as long as they live. Likewise, there's a lot of sexual morality. There's a lot of parental morality about who's doing a good job taking care of their kids and protecting them instead of like letting them wander out into the lake where there are crocodiles. That's all moral judgment. But then once you get a situation where, let's say, imagine um, imagine you're a medieval peasant you're living on your little family land. Maybe you're all serfs. You know, you hardly interact with other families very much. And maybe, you know, you're taken by your, your parents to a market town for the first time. And suddenly, oh my God, there's hundreds of strangers from all different farms, miles away from you. You don't know them. You don't know their names. But you're trying to sell them stuff, and they're trying to sell you stuff. 
suddenly you're in a situation that would have been, I think, quite rare in prehistory, where there's a whole new set of moral issues that come online when you're kind of in a free market interacting with strangers and you're trying to cultivate your reputation mm -hmm. so that next week when you come back to the market town, people will go, oh, you know, those folks make, you know, the best arrowheads mm -hmm. or plows or sell the best produce or whatever. And so suddenly you kind of have to put your game face on mm. as a little medieval entrepreneur. And you have to interact with people you may never see again, but who will gossip about mm -hmm. the quality of your goods and services. Um, and various economic historians like Deidre McCloskey have, have written about how this kind of favors the, the bourgeois virtues that you need to develop new kind of codes of, of morality for dealing with markets where you're going to be judged by what you deliver to your customers or your investors or your suppliers or whatever. And it's not really to do with your personal traits as a you know, lover or parent or, or sibling. Mm -hmm. It's to do with the, a slightly more kind of abstract and public set of, of virtues as a market participant. Mm. And I think in a way, the, the complexity of that morality may have kind of peaked not in the present day, but actually a century or two ago. In the present day, in a way, it's easier. Like I'm renting an Airbnb here for a couple months. I didn't need to rely on reputation through word of mouth. All I have mm. to do is be able to see five stars is better than three stars, according <laughs> to you know, the ratings by all the, all the other Airbnb guests over the years. So if you can kind of systematize the moral judgments about quality in a market in terms of like Uber ratings, Google ratings, Airbnb ratings, um, you know, reviews by tech journalists or whatever, that actually reduces the cognitive load and makes things way simpler mm -hmm. than it might have been a couple decades ago. But it also holds everybody up in a way to kind of a higher ethical standard because suddenly you're in a kind of ethical panopticon where everybody's judging everybody else right. and giving continual feedback. Yes. Yeah, very interesting point. Uh, it's almost as if um, I, I've been talking to John Verveke. I think I mentioned that previously and he has this concept of psycho technology where it's not a physical tool, but it's like literacy or numeracy. It's a, a cognitive instrument that we use. And it's almost like morality is somehow related to that in a way or, or virtue perhaps, because it's, these aren't just arbitrary, super subjective norms that we come up with. They're, they're you know, honesty is important across all people in all situations. Um, as I would say, these other, other virtues are. So, in a way, as we become wealthier through deepening the division of labor, we're actually uh, increasing the emphasis on virtue, uh, behavior governed by virtue, I guess you may say. So you're kind of pushing virtue to the surface of human behavior. And maybe another way of saying that is lowering your time preference, because I guess the lower your time preference, the more long-term thinking you are, 
Therefore, the more virtuous you would tend to be. So what I'd like to do is read an excerpt from your book, which I think opens up where we're headed today. It says, the hypothesis here is that sexual sexual selection shaped at least some of our distinctively human moral virtues as reliable fitness indicators. Precursors of many human moral virtues, such as empathy, fairness, and peacemaking, have been found in other great apes. My claim is not that sexual selection created our moral virtues from scratch in our species alone. Rather, sexual, sexual selection amplified our standard social primate virtues into uniquely elaborated human forms. And you go on to say, besides sexual selection, many other forms of social selection probably shaped human morality, including kin selection, reciprocal altruism, discriminative parental solicitude, commitment mechanisms, risk-sharing mechanisms, social norms and punishment mechanisms, group selection, equilibrium selection among alternative evolutionary strategies. You said more on that later. So it's fascinating to me. Again, we're coming back to that quote from Aristotle that it's, this is all the change in these attributes is all exchange driven, right? Whether we're talking about cooperative sexual exchange, market exchange, or competitive exchange. Um, Maybe you, you could just speak to that a bit. I know that's a lot, it's a big opening, but um, maybe you could just speak to what direction that is sending this, uh, the rest of the exploration of this chapter. So I, I kind of mentioned all those other um, types of social interactions and types of social selection pressures, which is ways that evolution shapes us through how we deal with other you know, people. Um, I mentioned all that, you know, to try to say, look, Miller's not saying that only mating shaped human morality. Mm -hmm. I think mating was important. I think looking good to potential mates and keeping their love and respect over, over the long term has been um, pretty central to the evolution of human morality but it's not the end of the story. There's a lot of really technical terms in there, like discriminative parental solicitude. What the hell is that? And it basically means, like it or not, parents, when they're raising kids, are all the time making judgments about, is this a good kid or a bad kid? How much you know, energy and attention and investment do I put in this kid versus that kid? Some kids are kind of duds, and you don't expect very much of them. Other kids are like, have amazing potential, and you want to nurture them and really help them. And then other kids might be really, really needy and they need a lot of care or else they won't thrive at all. So parents are making these kind of intuitive calculations all the time. Mm. And among the things that they're evaluating is you know, the kind of moral virtues of their kids. Mm. If you're a parent and you see your kid you know, <clears throat> being really nice and caring to another kid even when you're not watching or they don't think you're watching, um, you get this kind of warm glow of parental pride, like that's a good kid, good for you, awesome, I taught them well. Or they're just naturally good or something. And when you see your, your kid being you know, mean to a friend, or even worse, if they're older, like mean to their boyfriend or girlfriend, mm -hmm. 
it's massively embarrassing and you feel a kind of secondhand you know, moral shame about that. So there's a story to be told about each of those kinds of relationships. Same with friends. You know, if you have good long-term friendships, like, like I've had the good fortune to have, you know, multi-decade friendships, you feel morally accountable to your best friends. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of let them down in some way, or even you do something unrelated to them that you know they'll judge to be like an ethical blunder, that's also really embarrassing. We feel the, the weight of accountability to, the, to those friends. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying again to, to put morality back into the real social relationships that we have every day with the people who are important to us. And to kind of remind people, you know, morality is not this, it's not this kind of luxury thing where like, well, once I get to be 50 and I've like made my fortune, then mm-hmm. I can worry about where, like which money I give to what charity. Mm-hmm. It's gotta be there all the way through your life. It's, it's not like a sort of um, leisure activity you can just sort of add on later. Interesting. And then so the conscious development of virtue, that is a, a useful aim in life because that, I guess the feedback goes the opposite direction. The more you develop these characteristics, the more you improve your soci- sociality and um, satisfaction in your friends and, and romantic partners and such. Um, the more successful you are in life, right? The more connection you have, the more happiness, the more wealth you can generate, I guess, even with, with professional relationships. Uh, that feeling of pride you just mentioned, where if a parent sees a child interacting well, exhibiting good moral virtue in a situation that you feel, oh, that's a good kid versus the reverse of them perhaps not doing that so much. Is that connected to that same uh, desire for your genes to succeed in that way? Like you want your child to succeed across the broadest set of games possible in life. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause you know, when you're nurturing a kid, there's kind of a social taboo against talking about this in a, in a straight up honest way, but partly what you're nurturing is, you know, you, you're creating a kind of, vessel for your genes that hopefully ends up in grandkids and great grandkids. Mm -hmm. And we've been under selection to be the kinds of parents who worry about that, who plan for that, Mm. where that kind of is the end game, you know, is, is creating uh, not just offspring that are good at surviving, good at making a living, but creating offspring who will be attractive to potential mates and find mates and form good relationships and have kids in turn. And, worrying about the, uh, the moral virtues of your kids. In a, in a sense, what you're doing is you're kind of front running the moral judgments that their future potential mates will make about them. Mm, interesting. Right? You're kind of oh. like crafting somebody who's like ready to make their ethical debut in the mating market, who's sort of better equipped you know, not just in terms of their appearance and their accomplishments and their education, but also better equipped kind of morally mm. than maybe their sexual rivals are. 
and this this is the story not just of you know bourgeois morality in the market it's also the story of bourgeois uh family morality mm. where you you know back in victorian england parents paid a huge amount of attention to cultivating the moral virtues in their offspring so that they would be presentable in polite society mm-hmm. and that sounds very quaint now <laughs> but it's not that different from like modern hipster parents making damn sure that their kids at least understand the ethics of veganism before they move to brooklyn yeah right. you know, because yeah. they know they're going to be interacting with a bunch of vegans in brooklyn yeah. and if they don't know why some people are ethical vegans they will be morally handicapped in that mating market interesting Wow, so there, it's almost as if morals are the voluntary adopted rules of a social network, perhaps. I mean, I mean, they've clearly emerged over time. They become norms in a way. And you never want to see, well, you never individually, nor do you want to see your child break those rules, even if it's to win a specific interaction. Right. You don't want to see someone taking an immoral behavior to uh, have conquest in some given situation because that comes at the expense of future of their reputation, which is their future ability to play these games and, and iterate in these games. Really interesting way to look at it. So I want to take this now into. Because now we, we've we've landed on the reason why it's important the importance of virtue signaling, right? You're actually indicating to the market that you're a good player. You're of good social behavior or accord to enter into these, all these enterprises we do as humans. And I'll read another excerpt here. You said a potential mate may act agreeable and easygoing during courtship, then become irritable and cancerous after a couple of years. In this case, Courtship agreeableness was valued as a signal of likely future relationship agreeableness, but it proved an unreliable signal of the traits temporal stability. So the the other thing, the other thing you make the point here, as I understood it, please correct me if I'm wrong. So there's this clear incentive to virtue signal, but there's also an incentive to falsely virtue signal, right? If you could just make someone believe you're honest without actually having to be honest, then uh, there's a biological, at least, (laughs) impetus to do that. Could you then, could you speak to that and then get into why costly signaling is so important? Yeah, so the basic concept of signaling theory is you've got one individual trying to signal traits to another individual, maybe same sex, maybe different sex, maybe different species, whatever. The center of the signal usually has an incentive to try to manipulate the perceptions and behaviors of the other individual, hmm. you know, in the first individual's own interests. So, you know, if you're in the mating market, you're some horny young single guy and you're going to bars and you're trying to chat up women and do the pickup artist thing, right? You would love to send whatever signals tend to be successful in meeting your kind of short-term sexual goals. Mm-hmm. So those might be signals of, you know, you know, physical attractiveness and muscularity and dominance and 
being cocky and funny and, and all that stuff. And it might also include sending the right moral signals that indicate, yeah, I'm cocky and funny, but I'm a good guy and trustworthy. And mm. if you come home with me, I won't like beat you or steal your money or ruin your <laughs> reputation or whatever. So we're always, you know, anytime we have a, an incentive to signal competence to anybody mm. about anything, there's also usually an incentive to signal some kind of moral virtues alongside that. And so the question from the receiver's point of view, the person receiving the signal is fine. I, I know, like if you're a woman in a bar, you know damn well all these guys want to signal whatever they think will make you interested in that. Right. And you're going to have what's called receiver skepticism. The BS you know, filter. <laughs> the BS filter. Yeah. You're going to be like, yeah, I know. Okay. You're, you're signaling, you, you claim you make this much money and you're this popular and you have this many Twitter followers, whatever. Some of that is going to be bullshit and some of it's going to be unreliable. And you're kind of your job as, as a receiver of those signals is to distinguish true from, from exaggerated, from outright false signals. Mm. <sighs> So the signalers got this dilemma of like, they'd love to be able to impress everybody all the time with their moral virtues. Um, but so would everybody else. And some ways of signaling those moral virtues are gonna be a lot more reliable than others. A lot harder to fake, mm. easier to check. Um, and and the, the concept of costly signaling is that often the signals that cost a lot tend to be more reliable if, if the cost has a particular relationship to the trait. Mm -hmm. So if you're signaling intelligence, for example, um, you know, one easy way to do that is through uh, vocabulary size. So just using not super pretentious words, but just rare, unusual words that maybe most people don't know, but if you use them accurately mm -hmm. in a conversation, it's kind of hard to fluently use rare, difficult, interesting, poetic words during courtship. Mm -hmm. But it's relatively easy for the receiver to recognize those words and to kind of judge, are you using them accurately? You know? Interesting. So... Signaling intelligence, there's lots and lots of ways we can do it pretty, pretty reliably. Signaling moral virtues is a, is a little, little trickier. And, you know, often we end up using uh, social proof, information from other right. people, reputational information. Um, sometimes we'll do little moral tests, you know, um, set up situations of temptation or potential betrayal or um, where there's kind of a, a conflict between someone's short-term selfish interests and their long-term interests in the relationship, mm. you know? And then we'll set up a little moral obstacle course <laughs> for the other person and sort of see how well they get through it. And this is the story of every second act in every romantic comedy, right? Mm -hmm. Right. There's one person in the couple, like the couple meet, they fall in love, and then there's a moral issue. Somebody 
does something insensitive or treacherous, and then they split, right? And some moral failing has been revealed. And then in Act 3, they kind of resolve it and get back together and mm-hmm. resolve to be better moral partners. Um, but that's, that's the basic plot, as far as I can tell, of like every romantic comedy is moral obstacle course set up, other person tries to run it, they partly succeed, but partly fail. And then you, you make a judgment about like, are they good enough ethically that I want to stick with them? Hmm. Yeah, I think in your book, you said you could almost condense all of courtship down to that moral obstacle course, right? We're constantly kind of testing one another's um, moral competence, perhaps. Um, not just moral competence, but that's definitely one huge aspect of it. And so with signaling, I don't know if we touched on this last time, but it's like very, it seems clear that costly signaling is a form of proof of work, right? Like there's the work itself is very hard to fake, somewhat easy to verify. Um, And I, I like this example of intelligence where fluency with large or specific or complicated words that's hard to fake, right? You can't, not, you can't just pick that up overnight. I mean, that takes a lot of practice and study and what have you, but easy to verify, right? It's very easy to tell if someone's speaking fluently and using a word accurately. I guess you could say maybe it's cheaper to listen than it is to be fluent in that way. So again, a proof of work that's hard to fake, but cheap to verify is uh, conducive to an honest signal. Uh, and then the idea of social proof too, is kind of a market mechanism because if it's, if it's a reputation, you don't, you as an individual don't control your reputation. So if you have a good reputation, that means you've rendered some goodness onto others and they are effectively speaking on, on your behalf to your reputation. So any interested counterparty can somewhat reliably, uh, use that as an indication. So it's just it's game theory all the way down, it seems like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I've been sort of selecting um, readings for this new course I'm teaching on uh, psychology of decision making. And um, it is game theory all the way down because there's some great readings that go all the way down into like uh, kind of decision making in insects, even decision making and communication and cooperation and game theory among plants. Mm. And which can communicate through various kinds of chemical signals about what's happening in their, their little plant environment. Um, and, you know, none of this necessarily requires a soul or a consciousness or complicated thinking. Right. Because um, all you really need is different um, agents that have different interests and yeah. can interact repeatedly in some way with reasonably high stakes. Yeah, just complex systems and feedback loops are enough to set this up, right? 